Reflections on William Shakespeare's The Tempest by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 Well, The Tempest is Shakespeare's last play and by most account, most estimations, his, his literary will and testament. And so uh, a good deal of attention has been paid to it but our concern, of course, is not with its historical or biographical uh, meaning, although we occasionally uh, reflect on that. There's some touching aspects of that in a personal way, I think. But, you know, Shakespeare wrote his plays for the Globe Theater, and the theater was well uh, named, and Shakespeare is constantly aware of the fact that what he is presenting on his stage is, is really the world, presented in such a way that we might see aspects of it that we might not see were they to appear in their ordinary form outside the theater. So the globe is, as some have called it, the Theatrum Mundi, the theater of the world. And one of the commentators on Shakespeare, a Polish literary critic, Jan Kot, said that when it comes to The Tempest, really true of all of his plays, but certainly recognizable in Tempest, the theater is the Theatrum Mundi, the theater of the world, but it is, as Kotz says, the theater Mundi after an earthquake. The theater of the world after the world has been shaken by an earthquake. And I propose to understand this play by trying to understand ourselves and vice versa, and that is by seeing that the earthquake that has shaken the stage and the world for Shakespeare, is an earthquake that is still shaking us. We are experiencing the latter stages of that earthquake. And without being too subtle about it, I think, particularly for the purpose of this play, we could say that the earthquake consists of the collapse of Renaissance humanism and that that collapse is underway in our time and that Shakespeare foresaw it and foresaw its consequences. W.H. Auden, as you know, wrote a commentary on literary commentary on The Tempest entitled The Sea and the Mirror, and I had hoped to spend some time on that, but it, it may not be possible to do so, so I'm, I'm stealing little portions of it into our, our reflection on The Tempest. And uh, for Auden, uh, the, the players come back out after the performance and address one another or the audience or whatever, and it's, Aud it's Auden's attempt to to bring the play into its contemporary, the meaning of the play into the contemporary setting. And in that, uh, there is a long piece by Caliban speaking in a very poetic sort of prose, a kind of J uh, William Jamesian uh, prose, these great long sentences. I'll quote one to you here in a few minutes. Uh, it's Caliban who's the, who's the monster, this uh, unregenerate monster on the on the island that Prospero and his daughter Miranda have been stranded on for 12 years. In Auden's version, Caliban is speaking uh, to the audience that has just seen the play, and he's helping them understand uh, some of the subtleties. And, and making the play's point more, a more contemporary point for 20th century audiences. And Caliban says, now speaking to the audience, which is to say to us, about what has been depicted in the play, he says, what relief have you but in an ever giddier collective gallop with bison eye and bevel course, bison eye means blinded eye, and bevel course, meandering, angled course. What relief have you but in an ever giddier collective gallop with bison eye and bevel course toward the gray horizon of the bleaker vision? Such are the alternative routes, the facile, glad-handed highway, or the virtuous, averted track, by which the human effort to make its own fortune arrives all eager at its abruptly dreadful end. So the continuing demise of Renaissance humanism and the, and the aspirations that it supported if 
even after the testimony of people like William Shakespeare, even after the overwhelming evidence of the 20th century, if we still managed to believe, based almost solely on the achievements of applied sciences, that progress is inevitable and that the idea of fallenness is passé, it is because, as the French novelist Jean Sullivan put it, the enlightened voices of our time are still too drugged with hope. Too drugged with hope, in fact, to recognize uh, the gospel message and to appreciate that it is, in fact, good news. And as long as we are thus drugged with hope, and the hope is the, the hope of what, we're, what I'm calling here the late Renaissance humanism, thus drugged with one of the now many strains of that uh, hope, it's awfully difficult for us to recognize something salvific in the Gospels. They seem to be talking about something alien, antique, uh, or to recognize that they, after all, are good news. This is a little bit name-dropping, you know, but I had, uh, I had lunch with Gerard yesterday, and in the course of a little chattiness, he chuckled about... Um, what's happening in Eastern Europe. He said the collapse of communism is simply the collapse of the weaker of the two forms of humanism that are still dominant in the Western world. And the other form, the irony is that the other form is celebrating it as though it's a victory for itself. <laughs> it's like two prisoners, you know, and the guard comes and gets one to take him to the gallows and the other one says, oh, great. <laughs> Because Shakespeare is a compassionate man, uh, not as compassionate maybe as some have thought, <laughs> I think he's still a compassionate man, uh, and a generous-hearted man, he wants to leave the world some hope. But because he has spent his career looking into the problem of human emotionality and confusion, uh, he's in no mood, I think, to leave a shallow and empty gesture of reassurance. And some have found that in the Tempest, and some, a few, a minority, have found no hope at all. Well, I think there is hope in the Tempest, but it is certainly not the hope of someone who's willing to ignore uh, what he has discovered about uh, the human dilemma. So he doesn't want to give us another narcotic, a hope that, we'll, that we can drug ourselves on for another few years only to have it wear off and turn us into cynics uh, or into addicts for another version of some kind of shallow hope. He wants to give us something that will stand up under the truth of our situation as he has discovered it over the years. He runs into the problem that because, you know, Sullivan said we're, we're drugged on hope, that's... Uh, one of the reasons for that is we're so quick on the uptake with hope. This is something, by the way, the Hebrew prophets discovered. They, they discovered they had to be very careful about words of hope. They could speak them in, in, at times of disaster, but they learned that they better not speak them in times of prosperity because they were snapped up immediately and, and made into these, these, uh, these platitudinous reassurances that kept the whole show going, you know. And so they're very careful about when it was appropriate to speak hope because we were so eager to grab onto it, you see. And I think Shakespeare has this problem as those who have, who have had something of a prophetic vocation have always had. And I, if I may, I'll turn to Auden again. And again, this, uh, this presentation, this speech by Caliban to the audience. And now this is one of those Jamesian sentences that goes on, and we, 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 should, have a, we should have a blackboard and diagram it uh, if we, to, to really understand it. But I, I'll, I'll read it so you, I think you'll get the drift of it. It's the problem that he sees uh, someone like Shakespeare having. He's referring here to Prospero, but Prospero really is the, is the director and producer of the events on the island. So in a sense, Prospero is Shakespeare. Uh, and that becomes clear at the end of the play. So Caliban here is talking about not only Prospero, but Shakespeare. And he says, having learned his language, you know, Prospero and Miranda taught Caliban language. And he's avenging himself on them with these Jamesian sentences uh, uh, under, under the pen of, of Auden. But in any case, 
uh, having taught them language, now he's talking about directly about Prospero, but indirectly about Shakespeare, so we can see the problem. Having learned his language, Caliban said, I begin to feel something of the serio-comic embarrassment of the dedicated dramatist, who, in representing to you your condition of estrangement from the truth, is doomed to fail the more he succeeds. For the more truthfully he paints the condition, the less clearly can he indicate the truth from which it is estranged. The brighter his revelation of the truth in its order, its justice, its joy, the fainter shows his picture of your actual condition and all its drabness and sham. And worse still, now this is a sentence with this great qualifying clause in the middle of it, and worse still, the more sharply he defines the estrangement itself, now here's the inserted clause, and ultimately, what other aim and justification has he? What else exactly is the artistic gift which he is forbidden to hide, if not to make you unforgettably conscious of the ungarnished, offended gap between what you so questionably are and what you are commanded without any question to become, of the unqualified no that opposes your every step in any direction? What else, he says, should a creative artist do for us, if not that? But remember, the sentence started this way. The more sharply he defines the estrangement itself, which is that, and then he finishes, the more he must strengthen your delusion that an awareness of the gap, the gap between uh, who I so questioningly am and who I am called to be, the more he must strengthen your delusion that an awareness of the gap is in itself a bridge. Let that sink in. <laughs> that the awareness of the gap is itself a bridge. He strengthens that delusion. To go on, the more he must strengthen your delusion that an awareness of the gap is in itself a bridge. Your interest in your imprisonment, a release. So that, far from your being led by him to contrition and surrender, the regarding of your defects in his mirror, your dialogue using his words with yourself about yourself, becomes the one activity which never, like devouring or collecting or spending, lets you down. The one game which can be guaranteed, whatever the company, to catch on. A madness of which you can only be cured by some shock quite out of his control. We, that's one sentence, by the way. And I didn't even get to the end of the sentence. We could study that passage for its power for a long time. I mean, there's a lot of nuance in there. What he's talking about is Shakespeare's dilemma. How do you tell, how do you try to speak the truth about the gravity of the human situation? and speak some word of hope as well. Or, put another way, how do you speak the truth about the, about the estrangement, the alienation, and speak some word of something on the other side of that as well? And Caliban, parentheses Auden, says it's a dilemma that can't be solved, that the, that the dramatist simply is faced with that dilemma. And all he can hope is that if he lays the, the facts on the table, that somewhere along the line, each of us will experience, individually or collectively, the ontological shock that will bring the truth of the revelation in both its, uh, both its unsettling and its reassuring dimension uh, to us. It's the role of the ontological shock in this coming awake that, that I think is a, is a subtle but important feature of The Tempest. The first scene is one of those staples in Shakespeare where he depicts the crisis 
what uh, Ulysses in Trollus and Cressida had called the crisis of degree, uh, what Girard sometimes calls the crisis of distinction, where the structured order of culture suddenly is in shambles. The structured order of culture is one in which everybody has a place and knows his or her place, knows the relationship between oneself and one's peers on a horizontal level, oneself and one's uh, one's uh, uh, superiors and inferiors and so on. Uh, and everything is functions in terms of that hierarchical structure, usually a hierarchical structure. As long as things are going along swimmingly, no problem. Everything stays in place. As long as, you know, the uh, inflation is low and unemployment, I mean, uh, employment is up or something, whatever the circumstance, everything stays in place. But when there is a, an interruption, there is this crisis and suddenly things aren't holding together the way they have always held together. And that's what the storm scene does. Of course, the storm scene, it would be interesting to pursue the storm scene uh, all the way through Shakespeare. The storm really is the ontological shock. It's not being presented here in this play, but in, certainly in 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 uh, Lear, for instance, it's the ontological shock. It's it's when one is snapped out of the cultural myth, uh, and there's a little bit of that here. So it's in the middle. Of, now we have to remember, Prospero is choreographing this whole storm. It's absolutely harmless, but of course the people in the in the midst of it don't know that. So the master speaks to the bosun who is the practical uh, organizer of affairs on the deck, you see. And the master calls the bosun, and he tells him to take charge of the mariner. And the bosun begins in a very, in a very uh, hearty and, and uh, robust way to take charge. He says, hey, my hearts, cheerly, cheerly, my hearts, yeah, yeah, which means quickly. Take in the topsail, tend to the master's whistle. So he's taking the task on. I think it's very important to see the deeper meaning in many of the things in scene one. But the first is, take in the topsail, tend to the master's whistle. Now, this has a very practical implication in terms of sailing, but beyond sailing, Shakespeare's speaking both of sailing and not of sailing. This is a little bit like Melville, you know, when he uses the ship. The ship is in, in Shakespeare, as in Melville, the microcosm of the world. And so we're seeing what happens in the crisis on, in the world. And the first thing you do in a storm is you take down the topsail because otherwise you're blown no telling where. Take down the topsail, tend to the master's whistle. Now this is a very subtle, if we see the deep, you see, I'm asking more of Shakespeare than he probably intended. This is the kind of a midrash that I'm doing already in the play, but... What does it mean to take down the topsail and tend to the master's whistle? One thinks of those, this is one of those paradoxical things, one thinks of those, some of the controversies in the early church. Is this a Petrine church with a, with a leader at the top? Or is this a paraclete church? You see? Do you see what I'm saying? Do, do, do we need the topsail? Uh, to give us direction and course? Uh, or do we all begin to try to attend to the master's whistle? What does that mean, attend to the master's whistle? What I want to, I don't want to become too rarefied in this, but this already is introducing a tremendous paradox, which, is, which doesn't appear except in the crisis. The king of Naples, Alonzo, comes up, filled as are the other nobles on board with his own sense of self-importance. And he immediately says, where's the master? Looks right through the bosun, you know. Where's the master? Now the bosun is running things. Things have changed. This is the storm, your highness. He doesn't see it. He looks right through him. Where's the master? He's very contemptuous. He sees all these men running around in a flurry, and he says, act like men. Play the men, meaning be a little, show a little more decorum. Hey, I'm the king. <laughs> he, he has no idea the gravity of the situation. Where's the master? And the bosun says, I pray now, keep below. The bosun says to the king, 
keep below the crisis of distinction. Everything is suddenly being turned upside down. And Antonio, who's the usurper of the dukedom of, of Milan in Shakespeare's time called Milan, Antonio says, uh, where is the master, bosun? And the bosun says to him, do you not hear him? You see, the master's blowing the whistle. And the bosun and the mates understand the whistle. But the nobles, who are, who are still who are still mythologically, epistemologically, you say, encased in the other system of, uh, of hierarchy. They don't know anything about this whistle. They only know about top sails, mid sails. <laughs> they only know that. And that's coming down. This is the Renaissance. The bosun says to Gonzalo, what cares these roarers for the name of king? In the crisis, suddenly... Everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. And this is a great shock to all of us, by the way. All of us are involved in the, in the cultural set of distinction. But it's always a great shock to find out that they're not, they're not present. You know, Jung tells the story of the, of the uh, tourist who took the, who took the mountain climbing tour and he found himself uh, suddenly one of the, one of his uh, holes gave loose and he finds himself swinging out over a bottomless abyss in the Alps with just this one rope hanging up there. And he said, for the first time, I realized that everything was not necessarily taken care of by the, the, the Swiss Anglican uh, Tourist Association. <laughs> there you have it. It's, it's in this crisis that one realizes, hey, those things to which I attributed ontological status, meaning this fancy way of saying, meaning I, I attributed fundamental reality to those things, suddenly they're gone like that. What care these roars for the name of king? And then he says, to cabin, silence, trouble us not. He waves off the nobles with a, with a wave of his hand. And the bosun says, this is a funny little thing. Uh, Gonzalo says, remember whom thou hast aboard. And the bosun says, none that I love more than myself. Now, you see, we appreciate that because we would call that good insubordination. All readers who read this passage, all readers who read this passage are pleased with the bosun. I'm pleased with it. The difference between good and, and bad insubordination uh, is one of the distinctions that fades away as well. Shakespeare knows we'll applaud that. You see, we are we are products of this uh, of this sensibility. The bosun goes uh, tells Gonzalo, "You are a counselor. If you can command these elements to silence and work the peace of the present, we will not hand a rope more. Use your authority." And it is Shakespeare's way of saying, what does it really come to in the crisis? What can you do about this storm? And Gonzalo says, the it's kind of a comic part here, he says, I have great comfort from this fellow. Methinks he hath no drowning mark upon him. His complexion is perfect gallows. Stand fast good fate to his hanging. Make the rope of his destiny our cable for our own doth little advantage. If he be not born to be hanged, our case is miserable. <laughs> he's, he's destined to be hanged, and he can't be hanged on board this ship during the storm, so maybe there's hope. <laughs> In a way, though, Gonzalo is recognizing the, the future insurrectionist. He says he's destined to be hanged. This attitude, you see, is the, is the attitude which will become, in time, the political revolutionary. There's no question about it. Here, it's harmless enough, it's practical, it's saving the whole ship, and so on and so forth. But the attitude will, in its more uh, scandalized and radicalized form, become the political revolutionary. So, Gonzalo has actually seen the truth of the situation. And the bosun says, down with the top mast, lower, lower, Bring her to try with main course. Now, course is a synonym for sail. I don't. I know nothing about sailing 
in addition to the number of other things I know nothing about. <laughs> I don't know how much Shakespeare knew about sailing. I don't think he's talking about sailing. He probably knew enough to know they had some relevance. But when the bosun says, down with the top mast, lower, lower, bring her to try with the main course, main course synonym for mainsail, What's, what, are the, what are the metaphorical implications of that, symbolic implications of that? The topsail must be brought down to the, main, to the level of the mainsail. You see, the, everything must be leveled. <clears throat> everything must be leveled. Now, this has disastrous cultural consequences, but it is inspired by the gospel. It brings on disaster, but it is inspired by the gospel. Everybody is equal in the eyes of God. And then the, then the storm reaches its climax and the ship is, is, uh, is, is destined to crash into the, into the rocks. And finally, all the voices start to say, we split, we split, five times. We split, we split, we split. That really is the, that's the slogan of the last 500 years of Western history. We split, we split, we split. They, that is echoed by the last comment of Antonio, the brother of the Duke, and Sebastian, the brother of the King of Naples. Antonio says, let's all sink with the King. And Sebastian says, let's take leave of him. <laughs> so what we do, this split that's taking place is really the, is really the uh, otherwise invisible boundary line between the late feudal and the Renaissance position. That is to say, do we die with the, with the death of the, uh, of the paradigm of the zeitgeist? Do we die with the old order? Do we stay loyal to the old order and go down with it with our head held high, saluting? Or do we let it sink on its own and go out there and take care of number one? or start some other uh, system of alliance. It seems to me that's what Shakespeare's saying. Right? You have two voices. It's out of character for both of them, really. I don't think Shakespeare cared who said that. Uh, he just had them say it. One stays, one says, let's stay, one says, let's go. The split. So things are falling apart. So now we go to the island. Prospero has had his dukedom usurped by his brother Antonio. And he was expelled and his uh, young daughter, Miranda, with him. And they, because of the graces of Gonzalo, uh, found their way to this little island. They've lived there for 12 years. On the island, they found uh, Caliban the monster and, and um, Ariel, the uh, this spirit who performs uh, magic feats for Prospero. But now Prospero has known that his adversaries, his... Uh, enemies have been coming in close proximity, so he has caused their ship to crash. There are two reasons for this. He wants to set the score right with his enemies, and he wants to introduce Miranda to Ferdinand, the, the son of the king of Naples. In the next scene the uh, on the island, Prospero is telling Miranda not to worry. Nobody got hurt on the ship. Uh, it was all done with with uh, the help of Ariel and so on. And then he says, it's now time for me to tell you something. Uh, I My dukedom was usurped by my brother. And, he, and of course, she has no idea that she uh, is the daughter of a duke or any of that. And uh, uh, But then he goes on to tell how it happened. And he says, I was interested in study, the liberal arts, learning... And uh, so I turned everything over to my brother. He says, The government I cast upon my brother and to my own state grew stranger, being transported and wrapped in secret studies. Thy false uncle, dost thou attend me? He said, Dost thou attend me? Obviously, Miranda's sort of looking off, you know, watching a butterfly or something. And he says, and she snaps too, me, Sir, most heedfully. Oh, fine. And he goes on telling this story. 
of being once perfected, how to grant suits, how to deny them, who to advance and who to trash for overtopping, etc., etc. He, my brother, began to take more and more control, set all hearts in the state to what tune pleased his ear. And now that he was the ivy which had hid my princely trunk and sucked my verdure on it, thou attendest not, he says to Miranda. He said, wait a minute, you're, you're not, uh, are, are you paying attention to this? She's, she's yawning. Oh, good sir, I do, she says. He says, I pray thee, mark me. I, thus neglecting worldly ends, all dedicated, you get the, you get the impression that this is the, this is the story that, like a, like any good father, you know, he said, well, someday I'm going to tell him this story. And he's practiced it and practiced it. It's all, he knows how, what a, what an, what a transfixing story this is. He knows that this will just go right to the heart. And now he's telling it. Being thus lorded, not only with what my revenues yielded, but what my power might else extract, like one who, having into truth by telling it, made such a sinner of his memory to credit his own lie, he did believe he was indeed the duke. And out of the substitution and executing the outward face of royalty with all prerogative, hence his ambition growing, dost thou hear? Hey. Are you listening to this? Now, this is very fun. This is more important than the speed. It's absolutely crucial. She isn't interested. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why isn't she interested? Now, he uh, later on, he says to her, Here in this island we arrived, and here have I, thy schoolmaster, made thee more profit than other princes can that have more time for vainer hours and tutors not so careful. So we, we're made aware of the fact that she, of course, has had a different kind of upbringing. And we have to look to that when we ask, why isn't she interested? <laughs> now, think of other characters that Shakespeare has presented to us. You see, how would they react to this story? Lady Macbeth would have peed in her pants listening to this story. You see, there, this is a very, this story is full of the kind of intrigue and fascination that really gets us going. You see, Iago, how would have Iago reacted to this story? Or Edmund, in, in all, all these people in, in Lear, Edmund, Goneril, Regan, they would have come alive with this story. And Miranda can't keep her mind on it. It means nothing to her. It has no purchase on her at all. And why is that? Well, this is, you know, going out on the limb. Shakespeare doesn't present that, but he, he makes a clear point that she's not interested. I think it's because she has not had the induction into the mimetic system, what, what Gerard calls the mimetic system, that all the rest of us have had. In that sense, Miranda is like uh, immaculate conception. You see, immaculate conception means born without sin, come into the world without sin. There's a there's a quality of Miranda being immaculately conceived. She has not been induced into this the melodrama. She's never played the melodrama. She has no siblings on the island. She has one parent, who has been conscientious in his instructing her in virtue. But there's simply not enough of the social furniture on the island. To, to sufficiently tutor somebody about the mimetic game. And so she doesn't, you know, you take somebody uh, like me who's, who hasn't learned all the ins and outs of soccer and I stand on the side of the soccer field mildly interested. But I can take a portable radio listening to baseball and practically stick it in my ear. I'm so excited about <laughs> it. Why is that? I learned one of the little sociodramas and I didn't learn the other one. Just to take an analogy, Miranda has learned none of them. She's not interested. I think it's very important for us to appreciate that fact about Miranda. Miranda falls asleep. Ariel shows up and he reports to Prospero about the transformation, about the, sh the storm. And what has happened? And he has, he says uh, the, all the mariners have gone to sleep under the decks of the ship, and the nobles and the attendants of the 
noblemen are scattered around the island in small clumps. But the king's son is Ferdinand has been left alone. I'm going to postpone. I'm skipping around in the text, by the way, so I'm taking some things out of context here. But I just wanted to mention that one thing and show one, the first pre, uh, the first appearance of Ferdinand on the scene, uh, and then and then skip some of the rest of it and come back to it later. There are two things that are going to happen in this play that are of real significance. One is forgiveness. One would argue that that's the penultimate um, event, sacrament, if you will, that takes place at the end of the play. Prospero uh, forgives his enemy and inspires in them a spirit of uh, forgiveness, and that's a miracle. And the other one is the marriage of Ferdinand and Miranda. And that, I think, is the ultimate one because it symbolizes for Shakespeare in the same way that for the ancient Jews, the messianic banquet or the, or the, uh, or the wedding feast symbolized the, the ultimate resolution of things. So those are the important things. It's very important that Miranda and Ferdinand, not only for the, for the drama of the play, but for the, the, the picture that Shakespeare wants to leave to us, it's very important that they, that they arrive under the proper circumstances at the wedding feast. Miranda is ready. She has had no, she has had no training in the mimetic uh, situation. But that's not true of Ferdinand. Ferdinand will have to undergo a transformation. Now, we find out later that Ferdinand has had uh, several girlfriends and... Um, uh, I've attracted him a great deal, and they've all found he's found them all to have a few little flaws and so on. So he's had experience in the work, and he will have to be made ready for this this uh, ultimate sacrament. You know that uh, John Peel Bishop poem. This it's apropos of uh, Othello more than it is uh, obviously than this, but he poem about Othello. He starts off with the lines: uh, "The ceremony must be found that will wed Desdemona to the huge moor," and. Uh, uh, Obviously, the Desdemona Othello wedding is a diff- raises different issues here, but but the ceremony must be found that will wed Miranda and Ferdinand. He must be prepared as she already is, being immaculately conceived, so to speak, in terms of the sociodrama. So he has to go through a transformation. The source of most of these transformations, as Auden says, and as I try to put it, is is the ontological shock. And his is that he's lost his father and everything. He's on a desert island and his father is gone. And he's sitting there in desolation and Ariel comes and plays a little music. Ariel's invisible, plays a little music. And Ferdinand says, where should this music be, in the air or the earth? He says, sitting on a bank, weeping again the king my father's wreck, this music crept by me upon the waters, allaying both their fury and my passion with its sweet air. Thence I followed it, or it hath drawn me, rather, but tis gone. No, it begins again. Now, if I may do a little midrash on this uh, as well. You know, one can describe the modern history in many ways. This, I have a personal, you know, my father's killed in World War II, so I have a personal reason for, for uh, seeing things this way, but I think one of the ways one can describe the modern situation is, a, is an archetypal fatherlessness. You know, when, when the tone of the zeitgeist is to bring all the authorities down, to have n- no authority other than the, con- you know, the, the herd, the admittedly artificial uh, arrangement in which the father represented that authority is, a for, is, the, is the one most suspect, the one most subject to critique and, and so on. And so you get a situation in which uh, the whole problem of fatherhood is, is, is complex in the extreme. Tomorrow's Father's Day is my little peon to fatherhood. Ferdinand is is bemoaning 
fatherlessness. A lot of people are. But perhaps more profoundly than that, he is experiencing the ontological shock. One sufficiently uh, uh, sufficiently high on the Richter scale to produce, to have consequences. Now notice what happens. He says, this music crept by me upon the waters. Perhaps I should put this one. I have not suffered greatly in my life. Therefore, I have had to be very economical with my sufferings. I've had to uh, get the most out of them that I could. So, uh, so I can't claim to be an expert on it, except that I've tried to attend to it somewhat. It seems to me that in the in moments of desolation, there more often than not occurs this moment when one hears the music. This music crept by me upon the water allaying both their fury and my passion with its sweet air. Thence I followed it, or it has drawn me rather, but tis gone. No, it begins again. It's a tremendously... If one would just do kind of a little stay with that as a kind of uh, elaborate mantra of of that moment. Simon Weiss says, consolation comes, it leaves pain perfectly intact. Uh, there's an opening at the moment of desolation which can hear that music, hearken to it, and then it's gone, and then it's back. And uh, what is that music, you see? That music is not there for cheap reassurance. Ariel sings. Now he's going to give uh, the, 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 the words to this music. Now we would, if it, if we were playing Ariel, what would we do? We would play a nice little tune, and then we would say, "Everything's okay. Don't worry a bit. Your daddy's okay. He's over there on the other side of the island." That's not what Ariel says at all. He says, "Full fathom five, thy father lies. Of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade." but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Sea nymphs hourly ring his knell. And one wants to say, now what, is this good news or bad news? What am I hearing here? This is not cheeriness, optimism, shallow hope, encouragement. In fact, his father is alive and Ariel knows it. But what's being worked here is that ontological shock and its spiritual possibility. I want to take a little detour to T.S. Eliot, if I may, because Eliot uses this play in his wasteland in a very interesting way. Eliot's wasteland is a, is a mournful uh, lament about the state of Western culture at the time of its composition. The symbol for the state of that culture for, for Eliot in the Wasteland is the, is the crisis of relationship in marriage and the relationship between the sexes. Repeatedly, it's, that's where Eliot goes to locate, to take the temperature of the culture to see how it's doing. And he hearkens back to this play because it represents this marriage of Ferdinand and Miranda represents the way in which all of these contraries and so on are brought together harmoniously. And so it's, it's, it's as a foil to the, to, to the collapse of things as he sees it. Early in the wasteland, Eliot has these lines. Now remember, we're talking about the collapse of the complication of the father archetype, the collapse of authority, uh, creates a, a, an environment in which anything that has, anything that can claim traditional uh, respectability as its authority is immediately suspect. Anything that people, the last generation 
or two or three, four, five generations before regarded as authority, we automatically know has no authority. That's, that's a given. That's a priori before we even look at the situation. The only thing that can possibly have authority is something that's absolutely new, which is always some version of some ancient pagan nonsense. I sound like a real <laughs> throwback. Here's what Eliot says. Madame Sesostris, famous clairvoyant, had a bad cold, nevertheless is known to have been the wisest woman in Europe with a wicked pack of cards. You see this? Suddenly, the dilettantes all gravitate toward the Madame Sesostrises because she's doing something different. And what she's doing different is the tarot, which goes as an ancient cultic thing. But fascinating under the modern circumstances where we're thrashing around wildly for something that will tell us something about what's going on. So let's try card tricks. So we all show up at Madame Sesostris's. Here, said she, is your card. The drowned Venetian sailor. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Look. See what she, she knows not what she says, you see. But what she's saying, Elliot is saying through her is, you are experiencing that ontological shock, but you have not felt it yet. You're, you're buffering yourself from it by showing up here and having me turn these cards over for you. You're looking for some shallow hope. You're still drugged on hope. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Look. Here, she goes on, here is Belladonna, the lady of the rocks, the lady of situations. Here is the man with three staves. Here, the wheel. Here, the one-eyed merchant. And this card, which is blank, is something he carries on his back, which I am forbidden to see. I do not find the hanged man. Fear death by water. I see crowds of people walking round in a ring. Now, I hope uh, our study of René Girard has prepared us for the chilling uh, effect of those last lines. I do not find the hanged man, crucified one, fear death by water, which is the baptismal water, fear death by water. I see crowds of people walking around in a ring. On the front page of yesterday's New York Times was a crowd of Romanian miners with clubs circling one victim huddled over in the middle of the ring. What happened, you see? What are we talking about? I do not find the hanged man. We don't understand the crucifixion. It's, been, it's lost to us in some way. Fear death by water. Don't go near the baptismal water. I see crowds of people walking around in a ring. Now, we're not here to study Eliot, but, but Shakespeare. But Eliot was a tremendous interpreter of Shakespeare. And I think he sees the collective uh, situation there and so insightfully uses that line, those, those are pearls that were his eyes, to indicate the, the, the ontological shock which we should be feeling, but to, to which we have become uh, numb. Later on, in Eliot, in the Wasteland, there are these two uh, wealthy dilettantes, apparently married, bored, nothing to do. And they have this exchange that is full of vacuity and tedium. And at the end of it, she says to him, Do you know nothing? Do you see nothing? Do you remember nothing? She's talking to this man and she's saying, what has happened to you? What has happened to you? Eliot's talking about the, all of us. But it's, it's important that it's the woman asking the man, what has happened to you? And he says, and she says, do you remember nothing? And he says, I remember those were pearls that were his eyes. 
somehow he remembers that the old king has drowned. And she says, are you alive or not? Is there nothing in your head? And he says, oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. It's so elegant, so intelligent. The Shakespearean rag was a, was a song in Eliot's college days. It was a little bit like roll over Beethoven, rock and roll is here. It was using all the Shakespeare cliches in a jazzy little way. you know. And all this dandy can associate with those lines is this little pop tune. Nothing else to go on. Lost. Later on, the last of my little Elliot uh, asides, there's a scene between the, the famous scene between the clerk typist and the ha small house agent's clerk. They have a little sexual rendezvous. Perfectly gentle, nothing else. After which he stumbles down the stairs. Right after that, the, the, the poet, the pilgrim, the narrator of the poem says, in, in desperation, you see, he's now in desperation because of these scenes that he has depicted. And he's walking London. And he says, this music crept by me upon the water. And along the strand, up Queen Victoria Street, Oh, city, city, I can sometimes hear beside the public bar in Lower Thames Street the pleasant whining of a mandolin and a clatter and a chatter from within where fishmen lounge at noon, where the walls of Magnus Martyr hold inexplicable splendor of Ionian white and gold. Magnus Martyr is a, is a church down in the fishing part of London. And he walks by and he hears this genuine kind of community taking place, chatting at noontime. And then the sense of the, of the real value of this church. But it's passing. It's just like what happened with Ferdinand. You see, he hears it and then it's gone. Then he hears a little version of it again. Well, that, it's that tune we have to be attentive to, I think. Have to learn to attend to that tune. And we only hear it in its probably really important moment when we have, when we have uh, been forsaken by the, the uh, narcotic hopes of our age. 